Well, good morning, OCEC, and welcome back to Acts chapter 5 this week. You know, when I was a kid, uh, I grew up in Southern California, and we lived pretty close to the beach, close enough that we went a couple of times a year, and I loved going to the beach, even though I'm a redhead and the sun is, uh, I learned later, was trying to kill me the whole time, Um, but... Uh, we, had a, we had a pool in our backyard growing up, so I was a pretty good swimmer. So when we would go to the beach, my parents were okay with me just going out and swimming in the ocean at a pretty early age. And I'll never forget, you know, the, the times that we'd get there. You know, you pull up in the car, just run through the sand, drop all of your stuff, and then just go jump in the water. Um, and in Southern California, the water's pretty warm, uh, and the weather is always really nice. But even then, you take a little bit of time to get in the water. You know, you kind of ease yourself in. Because even though it's like warm for ocean standards, it's still not the pool in your backyard. And so I remember every time I'd go... And get in the ocean, you know, you kind of start walking in and you get about halfway in and just as you're taking your time, the first big wave comes and just nails you, just knocks you over, totally covers you in water and you fall down and then you get back up, especially if you're a little kid, this is quite a big deal, right? You get back up, here here comes again, here comes the next one, knocks you right over and then you're reminded pretty quickly, oh yeah, the ocean is trying to kill me too, right? Um, I know I sound like I was a pretty fearful kid. The sun's trying to kill me. The ocean's trying to kill me. But uh, nevertheless, uh, my, my dad taught me uh, very early on. He said, well, there's, uh, there's a really easy way to deal with this. And all you got to do is you got to go under the wave, uh, which is not what you want to do when you're easing your way into the ocean uh, is just jump all the way in. You know, you want to take your time, uh, but you have to. And he was right. Uh, sure enough, um, if I was walking out into the water and even the biggest wave was coming at me, all I had to do was dive under it. I'd just bend my knees even and duck down. And if I can get below that wave, then it would, with all of its force, wash over me and I'd be completely unaffected. And all I have to do is just pop back up on the other side and get ready for the next one. And I learned very quickly, I could stand out there, I could go out there with my friends and my family and be out in the water seemingly all day long without getting too tired and fighting the waves. Because I learned that uh, you, once you understood how they worked, you could get around them, you could avoid them. Uh, you know, this, there's, there's a movie that um, I saw with my kids. It's actually an animated short. It's called Piper. And it was at the beginning of a Disney movie, like a Pixar movie. And uh, if you haven't seen it, you got to see it. It's like so great. Uh, it's really short too. Uh, but go watch it on Disney Plus or something. Uh, Piper's about this little bird that is, uh, that is doing this. He's in the surf with his family, basically all the other little uh, birds. And, and he's, uh, he's looking for food and then he gets taken out by a wave and he's like, I'm never going back out there again until he discovers uh, a, uh, a crab. And by watching this crab, he learns basically the same thing. He learns that he can kind of bury himself down a little bit and the wave will pass over him and then he'll be completely okay. And in fact, not only does he get comfortable being in the water, but he it becomes like the best of all these birds uh, at catching food and because he, now he knows how the waves work. This, uh, this, this idea of, uh, of the power of a wave, right, that can with full force hit you, but if you understand the way that it works, uh, that you can avoid it and you can pop right back up on the other side. This is what I think of when I read a passage like this in Acts. And when I think about 
Peter and the apostles in the early church because uh, what we have here, as Matt just read to us, is yet again opposition that these guys are facing. And the opposition comes in the form of the, the Jewish uh, leadership, right? The temple leaders, uh, the chief priests, as they were called. Uh, everyone uh, was uh, in Jerusalem at this point. In fact, this, this whole first portion of Acts that we're still in, and we're going to be in for a little while longer, is only taking place in Jerusalem in a very specific period of time. We haven't left Jerusalem. We haven't left the Jewish people, really. We're still in that exact spot. And, uh, and, and what happens is as they are going to the temple each and every day, preaching, talking about Jesus, telling people about the life they can have in him, the, the, the leaders of the temple, because, because Jerusalem is like the capital city for the Jewish faith, and so as people have come from far and wide for the holy days there, then these chief priests, which is the group of priests that kind of run the whole church, the whole organization, get together, haul these guys in, throw them in jail, and begin to oppose them and their message. They don't get to just talk about Jesus with no consequences. And when these men bring uh, the full force of the Sanhedrin, as it's called, the Jewish council, uh, made up of Pharisees, Sadducees, every different theological group, every different sect, every different, the liberals, the conservatives, the radicals, the pacifists, all of these people in the Jewish leadership together go after Peter and the apostles. And with the full force of their leadership, the wave that they bring is massive. Because Rome, who really governs the place, has given them the ability to arrest each other, to do whatever they have to do, the, the Jewish leadership, as long as they can keep the peace. Because Rome's biggest concern is just keep the peace, don't let things get too crazy, otherwise we'll come in and then you'll be really sorry. And yet what happens, again and again, we read about it right here in this passage in chapter 5 of Acts, is that as the wave, the full force comes and beats against them, and the leadership that brings it is standing there thinking and saying to one another, well, that's going to do it, right? That's going to take them out. That's going to wipe them out. That's the end of them. They just pop back up. And they bring another wave against them and they threaten them once again. And they say, we're not just going to arrest you, we're going to kill you. And the wave passes and they pop back up. And each time, no matter how much these leaders bring against Peter and the rest of the apostles and the beginning of the early church, they always seem to respond the same way. They just bend their knees, they duck under the wave, they let it pass, they pop back up. But you know what they don't do is they don't run out of the ocean. They stay right there and they say, bring it on, basically. You see, what is happening here in this passage is opposition. And we've already talked about opposition. We're, you know, we're talking about all these different things that happen. We're like repeating ourselves because we're going to start to see here that this is kind of a theme in the church is that you can't preach Jesus, you can't preach the gospel, you can't preach the message of life without expecting to face opposition. Now, we don't like opposition. We don't like the waves coming. We don't like the fear that that brings with it. Uh, th this is such a great time in the life of the church. This is like the honeymoon period for them. People are being healed by the, people are being converted by the thousands. People are seeking out the apostles 
in hopes that the, the mere shadow of Peter will fall on them so that they'll be healed, is what it says in the passage before this. It is so incredible that they get to go to their own people, the Jewish people, and say, we have found life, and if you don't know about who Jesus is, then you will miss it. Like I said, these are their people. These are their friends and their family. This is their community. And, and, and as hard as these people are trying to serve God and follow God, they, they don't know that Jesus, the guy that they crucified, if they don't know him, then they won't have God. They won't have life. So the apostles are bringing this incredibly important message to them. But what happens as a result? Right when everything's going so great, why, when all the people are being healed and converted, the church is growing, this is like a movement that you would be crazy not to want to be a part of. This is a, like, a defining movement, right? This is the kind of thing that if you're a part of it, at some point in your life, you remember it for the rest of your life, I'm a part of that group of people because of how huge this situation, this experience is. Uh, but once again, they meet with opposition, this passage is about opposition to the gospel, to the people that bring the gospel, to the people who are a part of the church. And it's not just about them, it's about something that we face as well. And because it's about opposition, uh, we have to understand why opposition is so important in our lives. There's a couple of things about opposition that you see here that we're going to look at. The first one is uh, in some ways the most important because it defines the way that we approach the situation and how we move through it. If we duck and wait for the wave to come, pass, and then keep going, or if we just run out of the water after it knocks us down. It has to do with the way that we view opposition. And it's this, the, fir the first thing about opposition we have to understand is this, it's either going to be an obstacle or it's going to be an opportunity. The opposition, when it comes in our life, and, and by opposition, I mean any kind of opposition. And the pain and the suffering that come in our lives that we say, God, why in the world would you let this happen? If you really want us to go and shine like a light for you, then why would you let these things happen in my life? Why would you bring the, allow these people to come up against me? If you can stop anything, then why would you let this happen? Why would you let your people, the church, go through this? That opposition, the first thing we see about it here. And what happens with Peter, what happens with this angel, what happens with the Pharisees and everybody is this. The opposition is either something that we can see as an obstacle or something we can see as an opportunity. And if we see it as an obstacle, then all it is is something that we have to get past. All it is is something in the way of what we want, where we want to go. And so we just have to get around it. We just have to get over it. We have to get past it. Or we see opposition as an opportunity. Or we see it as an opportunity, which means that it's exactly what we've been waiting for in order to do the thing that God's calling us to do, in order to do the things that we're supposed to do while we're on this earth. We, we see this when they're rescued early in this passage from prison, miraculously. We read about it uh, starting in verse 17. So they've been preaching and, uh, and they've been spreading the word of the gospel and uh, the Sadducees are not happy. And so starting in verse 17, you read this. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in a public prison. 
But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So they are uh, arrested and put in what they say is a public prison. And, and, and so, like I said, the Roman authorities, because, because the Jewish people in Jerusalem are living under the control of Rome now. They're not in charge of them, their own country themselves. They've been invaded, taken over. But Rome said, you know what, we're going to be pretty easy with you guys. Uh, we're going to let you do your thing. And we're even going to let you kind of, you know, arrest each other, have rules for each other, punish each other if you have to. Just keep each other in line. If you don't, we're going to come in. We're going to get rid of all of you. And you're going to be sorry. And so they have a public prison and they put Peter and the apostles in the public prison so, and, they, and they, their plan is to bring them to trial the next morning. They want to bring them to trial in the daylight and they want to, they want to confront them and they want them to answer for this thing that they're doing that they already told them to stop. And so an angel comes miraculously, releases them, and then says, now get out of here and don't come back. Man, that was a close one. No, right? The angel says to them, now go and bring these people, speak to the people all the words of life. He says, go stand in the temple, go, go, go right back there, all right, you're out, go right back there, and speak to the people the words of life. And so it says that they did. You see, there's something about the apostles that uh, the, the chief priests, the leaders, just don't understand. And it's crazy to them, because it just doesn't make any sense they just don't seem to care at all that they're being arrested. They don't seem to care at all that they're being opposed. They don't seem to care at all that these guys are threatening them because they just keep going right back. People who do what they have done get killed for it. And they know this, but for some reason, they just don't seem to care. They keep going. They keep bending their knees when the wave passes over, popping back up, and waiting for the next one. They're told to stop, but God tells them, he says, keep witnessing. When the angel releases them, he's very clear. You're being released, not so that you can go and be safe and free and do whatever you want. You're being released so that you can go right back to that temple and you can preach the word of life to these people. An obstacle which many of us see, most of us see opposition of any kind as an obstacle. And that means that it is something that's in the way of what we want, right? I have what I want. I have who God's called me to be. E even if we want to get spiritual with it, we don't even just want to talk about like having a good life, having an easy life, which is what most of us really want, right? You get spiritual with it. You go, okay, fine. So God wants me to, to serve him in this way. He wants me to speak of him in this relationship. He wants me to, 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 to lead this family in this way, right? Then if something bad uh, comes into my life, right? If I face opposition, then obviously all that is is an obstacle. It's a hurdle, and God wants me to just get right past that thing, right? Maybe it's a test, right? Maybe it's supposed to, 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 to make me more resilient and just, and, and it's supposed to make me try harder and show God, see God, I'm really serious about this good life that you've called me to do, right? And so all we do is we focus on getting past it. We focus on getting around it. We say, I'm not gonna let this thing get in the way of what God has called me to do. But the problem is, opposition doesn't work that way if you're a follower of Christ. How do we know? Because that's not how Jesus handled opposition. 
You see, instead of seeing it as a hurdle, we see it as an opportunity. We say, you're not the thing getting in the way of what I want. You're the thing I've been waiting for because you're the way I'm going to get what it is that I want. You, the opposition in my life, are exactly what I've been waiting for. Now I get to do the thing that God's called me to do with you, opposition. Let's go for it. That is how we see it. That's how the apostles see it. When it comes, they don't run away. They don't freak out and they don't say, "Uh uh-oh, plans have changed. This is not what we thought was gonna happen. These guys walked with Jesus for years. They know that opposition comes hand in hand with preaching the gospel. And so they're ready for it and they respond because they're doing something important. They're giving these people the word of life. You know, Ellie and I were talking a lot before this quarantine started about our kids. Uh, There was just a couple of weeks where, you know, we were just, I think we found ourselves talking almost every night just about our kids and school. And we were talking about how they were doing in school. Our daughter started kindergarten, our son's in second grade. And we were talking a lot about, you know, just like, man, you know, we want them to do well, you know, and they were kind of struggling each in their own way. Nothing like really crazy, but just, you know, you, you care about that stuff. And, 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 you know, you, you know, we talk about it, you know, we do their homework with them. We'd ask them questions about school. We'd, we'd talk to their teachers all the time, you know, and, uh, and, and you have this like big fear as a parent that like the worst thing that could ever happen to your kid in school is that they fall behind, fall behind, right? You don't want them to not be where all the other kids are going to be at, right? Uh, you know, you wanted to get along with the other kids, you wanted to do well, you wanted to respect their teacher, things like that. And so we would talk about it, like, you know, and, and sometimes things would not be going well. And it's not because of their teachers or because of even the other kids. It's just because of our kids. It's because of, like, what they're doing, what's going on with them. And, and I mean, we were just always talking about it and, and we're saying, man, I just, I just wish I could just go, you know, and, like, be there with them and help them, you know, like sit there with them and go, here, let me help you. You know, I, I know, I know, you know, you need maybe, maybe some special help or something. And, you know, I, I want to make sure that, that you kind of get this or, or you wish you could just be there with them and the other kids and be like, hey guys, be nice to my kid. You got to understand, you know, they're okay. They're cool. Just, you know, you got to give them a chance. Right. Uh, and, and, and we, I mean, we cared, we, we talked about this. We, we, there were times that we really worried about it. We worried so much. We even prayed about it. And that's like a big deal, right? We don't, uh, we even prayed together about it. Well, lo and behold, a couple of weeks later, this whole quarantine thing hits, and we find ourselves homeschooling our kids, uh, uh, involuntarily homeschooling our kids. You know, and so something like this happens, and, and, and you're like, God, listen, I, I told you that I, we, we asked you to change our kids. We asked you to change their friends. We asked you to change their teacher or change their school or change their brains or whatever. We did not ask you to make us the ones who are going to be a part of doing that, right? We have got a lot of other stuff going on in our lives. We don't need to be doing this right now. And yet the opposition comes and we find ourselves in a position where the opportunity arises to do the very thing that we had been praying about and almost sort of lamenting over, but it just didn't make any sense that it would happen or work out in life. I mean, we love our, our elementary school. We like, our kids are, are, are a huge part of that school. And, uh, and so we never thought in a million years that we'd be homeschooling our kids, and yet here we are. But we don't see it as an opportunity to do this great thing We see it as an obstacle. We see it as something that's in the way of the lives that we want to be living right now. Rather than look back and go, isn't this kind of what we prayed for? You're saying, you know, God, I wasn't 
asking you to stick me with so many people who demanded patience. I was asking you to just make me patient, right? <laughs> just give it to me. Give me the ability to do it. God, I, 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 I want to tell the other people that Jesus is life for them, but this wasn't the platform that I had in mind. This wasn't the thing I thought you would do in my life or let happen in my life so that I could use it to tell other people about Jesus. A lot of times we think that God isn't very good at his job, that, that the way that he chooses to use us, the situations that he allows us to be in or even puts us in, we, we go, God, you're not very good at like doing the things, that, that, at, at setting me up to do the things that I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, it's like when my kids uh, come up and they're like, hey, Dad, can I help you while you're doing I'm, I'm working in my yard or something, I'm doing something, and my kids are like, hey, can I help you? And I'm like, yeah, great, okay, this is gonna take five times longer and it's gonna kind of be a mess, but okay, fine, you can help me, right? I mean, as, as, as almost blasphemous as that sounds, how often when the opposition arises in our life are we like, hey God, I know that you're trying to help. I know that you're maybe trying to do something here. Maybe you're setting me up to grow or learn or have something happen. But yeah, all this is doing is it's getting in the way of me uh, living the life that I'm supposed to be living, right? When in reality, it's an opportunity and it's the very thing that we've been waiting for. The apostles we see deal with this like a bad, like, a, like the very opportunity that they've been waiting for. Something's happened to these men. It's, it's made them not care at all about even their own survival. You know, right now, this quarantine, everything that's going on, everything that we're doing, we're turning our lives upside down. We're turning our entire world upside down. We are, uh, people are losing jobs. Uh, the economy is like going downhill. All kinds of ways we're suffering. There's no doubt about it. There isn't really a silver lining that's that clear about what's going on right now. But we're doing all of it for one reason, for one reason only, and it is to not die, right? We're doing it so that people won't die. That's it. Why? Because that's the most important thing in the world to the world, is that people don't die, right? When, if this is all we have, then we're gonna, we need as much time as we can on this earth. We need to keep as many people alive as we can on this earth. And there is nothing more important than even, even an opportunity to save life, keep people healthy. And we're seeing that because we're watching other stuff fall apart completely, it seems, all so that lives can be saved. But what we see with these guys is that they don't even seem to care about their lives. They don't even seem to care about living the next day. I mean, for the Pharisees to do what they did, this is the equivalent of like, gun to the head, stop right now or you're dead. They don't stop. They don't pull the trigger. I mean, this is like as close as you can get to going, are these guys really going to back down? Do these guys really believe what they say they believe? And then realizing that they do. These guys have the very words of life. And without setting the record straight about Jesus, all of their friends, all of their community will perish. I mean, there's something worse than being an atheist, being a, a Roman heathen, a person who worships false gods and doesn't even believe in the Jewish God. And the thing that's worse than that, I think, is thinking that you're following God, thinking that you're one of his chosen people, thinking even because you're a priest that you are totally set for life when actually you are one of the very people that sentenced Jesus to death. 
that life itself and the Messiah was right in front of you and you totally missed it. Peter knows this. The apostles know this. And they say, we want you to have true life so badly that we're going to come back and we're going to preach to you again and again. The brokenness of man, sin, is ultimately caused by us thinking that we don't need God. That's the root of why we sin. And the only way that we're going to see that we need God is when we see that we cannot survive without God. And the only way that we ever see that we cannot survive without God seems to be when the opposition comes. So is it possible that when that happens, that it isn't just an obstacle to get past, but it's an opportunity? If nothing else, what are the things that the church, that the apostles prayed when they were undergoing opposition? Did they pray, God, stop this? Did they pray, deliver us, keep us alive, keep us safe, let us have another day? No. They just prayed, God, use this for the sake of the gospel. When it's an opportunity, your, your biggest goal is not, how do I get away from this thing? Your biggest goal is, God, how can you use what's happening right now in all of our lives, right? God, how can you use what's happening right now for you? because this is the opportunity I've been waiting for. The other thing you see about opposition comes when uh, this one Pharisee uh, sticks up for them. And, uh, and we read about it. They come back and they preach their gospel and as usual, their message infuriates everybody because they're basically like, you guys killed Jesus, it's your fault and there is no way we're gonna stop talking about him. It says they're infuriated, they're filled with jealousy. And so we read, starting in verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. And then he goes on and he gives them some examples of, of a few people who have risen up, caused almost these rebellions, but ultimately they were squashed each and every time. The people died, their followers dissipated, uh, and, and then it was over. He says, you know, this isn't the first time this has happened, so let's all calm down. And he goes on in verse 38 and says, so in the present case, I tell you, Keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan is of the, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. So the other thing that opposition does is it is it shows us something that we are usually pretty blind to in the moment, and it is this. Opposition shows us what it is that we're really up against. Uh, we spend a lot of time in life being pretty confident that we know who the enemy is, what the problem is, and what it is that's making us upset, what it is that's causing our life to get hard, what the opposition's coming from. But when we lean into it and we see it as an opportunity and we embrace it, we start to understand what's going on and we see what we're really up against. In this case, uh, 
you see what's really going on with the Jewish leadership. There's no way to really talk about this passage adequately without talking quite a bit about who these religious leaders were. Because we have a very one-dimensional view of them. We tend to think of them, if you've heard, uh, if you've read the Bible before, you tend to think of them as, uh, these are the bad guys, right? These are the guys that killed Jesus, they are all bad, and they're evil, and they're the enemy, right? So it says here uh, in the beginning of this passage that the reason they were so infuriated and they put these men in jail were why? It was because they were jealous, right? Now Gamaliel, this very respected Pharisee, stops all of them, and what he says to them is he says, be careful because if this isn't of God, then they're going to fail. And if it is of God, we don't want to be against it. Now, how bad can these guys be, right? If, they're, if they seem to be actually believing, they're on God's side, and if God is on their side, they'll be okay. You see, uh, the Jewish people living in Jerusalem, these were God's people, and they were in the Holy Land. But then eventually, they would be overtaken. They would be, uh, they would be captured. Uh, the Holy Land would be taken over at first by the Alexandrians and, and, um, and, and, and the Greek sort of empire. And, and, there would, and, and this happened hundreds of years before this. And, and so when the Jews are conquered, uh, they get kicked out of the Promised Land for the most part. They get kicked out of Jerusalem. The place is destroyed. And, uh, and then they, get, they kind of begin to spread out. The Jews begin to spread out. It's called the dispersion. And it means they're dispersed, right? Now, now, as bad as the dispersion was, because they're all kicked out of the promised land, they have to go live everywhere else, it ends up ultimately being a good thing because uh, the dispersion, meaning there's now Jews living everywhere all around, this is probably the, one of the biggest factors that contributed to the, 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 the Christian church spreading because it, it used the Jewish churches, the Jewish connections to do it, and they were spread out all around outside of Jerusalem, not just in Jerusalem. So, so what happens is uh, the Alexandrian, you know, the Greek people, they come in, they conquer, and they start to influence the Jewish people. And, and so, uh, and this is not a good thing, right? God, tells, God told his people, he said, I want you to be my people. I want you to follow my, my laws. I want you to be distinct. I want you to show people that you're mine. And so uh, then ultimately the Romans come and they uh, capture them and they take them over. And, and now the Romans are in charge and they bring Roman influence and Roman gods and Roman customs. Now, like I said before, the Romans, they were actually a little bit easier to deal with because they kind of believed if we take it easy on these people, if we let them do their own thing, then that'll keep them more under control than if we just are constantly killing them and beating them up and making them do all these other things. So they basically say, you guys can, you can have your Jewish temple, you can have your religious stuff, you know, whatever you guys want to do, that's fine. But we are going to decide who's in charge of the temple. Uh, and so they would appoint uh, a person as the, as the, as the lead priest, the, the priestly leader, and that person was the one who was in charge of the Sanhedrin, who was in charge of the council, and they were kind of like the, the guy, right? So you then had these different groups there. You had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, and all of these are sects, all of these are people, groups of, of people who were very devout in the Jewish faith, uh, but they represented different ways of thinking. 
So um, um, this man that we read about here earlier, Gamaliel, he was a student of Hillel. Now, he was the first Pharisee, really, this man Hillel. And what happened was he was just a rabbi, and there were just just priests. That's all there were. They were priests, which are the guys that... They, they, you came in and they, they helped you through the, the sacrifice and worship and things like that. They taught out of the word along with the scribes. They also taught. And then that was kind of it. You know, there wasn't really much to it than that. But then this guy Halil came along and what he did became really popular. What Halil did, did was he started telling people what to do in every situation in their lives. So it's kind of like this. It's kind of like you, you leave the temple maybe after the synagogue. You leave the synagogue and you go out in the courtyard and there's this guy out there. And, and he says, you know, when this situation happens, when you come across this person, when you're, when you're faced with the temptation to eat meat on this day, but it conflicts with this weird thing, and you go, yeah, maybe I've been in that situation before. He goes, here is what a good Jew does. And then he gives him an answer. So what he did was he, he was known, he was famous for basically telling people what to do in every possible situation. And so we think of the Pharisees as being really legalistic, right? These guys made up all these extra rules. They did all these extra things. And, and oh, they're so bad because of that. But really where this all started was it started with the people's hunger, their desire to have more than just what God had given them, which was temple worship and the sacrificial system and the priest to leave that. They wanted people to tell them what God wanted in every possible situation in life, usually far beyond things that God had ever outlined in the Torah, in in the Bible, in the law and the prophets. Now, you hear about, we hear about this, we go, oh my gosh, what a bunch of sheep, right? Who, what, what kind of people like actually flock to someone who is going to like go out of their way to tell them more, right? To tell them more things to do, to say, this is better for you. Do this in this situation, right? No, that's crazy because that's the exact same thing that we do in the church today. And we have been doing for a long time. We love a good speaker, We love a person who's able to tell us, here's what the Bible says about this thing, right? Why do you think we sell so many Christian books in so many Christian bookstores that aren't the Bible, right? Because there's so many people who are saying, hey, here's what God says. Here's what the Bible says about this thing. And we love it. We eat it up, right? If we we have a pastor or a teacher that's famous, that's well-known because they have authority, they're respected. And these guys were very respected and lots of authority. We'd go, you know, uh, John MacArthur, you know, what does John MacArthur say about that you know when Mark Driscoll was a Bible teacher uh, or when he was when he was a a pastor that we listened to uh, you go oh yeah yeah did you hear about Mark Driscoll's take on that thing right you know what Francis Chan says about that right oh um, and 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 I mean when the pandemic started when the pandemic came and sort of landed and the quarantine began and you go you go online it's like it's like one blog post after another of people saying the Christian's response, here's what a Christian should do. Make sure you do these things. What God wants for you in this time. How God doesn't want you to act in this time, right? Uh, We are so quick to go out of our way to tell one another uh, this is exactly what God wants in this situation. And this was what Halil did. He was basically the first like mega pastor in the Jewish faith, with the Jewish people. And they loved him. They loved it. Lots of people came and studied under him. And this man, 
this man Gamaliel, Gamaliel he, he was one. He was a teacher that was so well respected. So, so Gamaliel was a Pharisee and the Pharisees weren't actually in control of the temple at this time. Matt talked about that a little bit last week. So, so these guys were not in control. Uh, the, the, the Romans didn't really like them as much. Uh, and, and part of the reason was just because they were so committed to like scripture and all these extra things that, and living a certain way that they, they didn't get caught up in quite as much worldly stuff as the Romans did. And so there wasn't as much to entice them with. Now the Sadducees on the other hand, which is another group of, of these people of, of sort of a sect, um, the Sadducees were people, they didn't believe in resurrection, they didn't believe in an afterlife, and, and they believed that, that, that all the claims that were being made were just totally crazy, totally nuts, right? That the, that the apostles and Jesus were making about resurrection. But the Sadducees were pretty materialistic. They, they had kind of taken the Jewish faith, and then they kind of added some of this Roman, like, yeah, I kind of like this, you know, love of the body, love of the spirit, right? Enjoyment of life, sort of hedonism, having material comfort, having material wealth, right? I mean, you know, we could still live in Jerusalem. We could still make a pretty good life for ourselves. All, all the guys in this, in this group, they were, they were pretty wealthy. They were the leaders of the community. And so the Romans wanted the Sadducees to be the group of people in charge of the temple. And they wanted them to because uh, they were easier to control, because they were more worldly and they were easier to appease with money and with power and with influence. So the Sadducees are the ones that uh, lead the council, that throw these guys in jails, but the Pharisees show up, everybody shows up. And Gamaliel says to them, he says, let's be careful what we do because if this is of God then we don't want to be against it. You see, the reason it said that they threw them in jail was because they were jealous. And why would they be jealous? Simple. These men have spent their entire lives desperately trying to win the respect, to win authority over the people in the Jewish church. They were born into families that already were respected. So they had to be respected even more than their fathers before them. They had knowledge. They had training. They were really, really good speakers. These guys were, were sophists, which means they were, like, they were like able to argue both sides of an argument if they needed to. Right? Does that sound like any pastors? Right? Um, uh, you know, we, we, get, we get so good at arguing and explaining things. Sometimes it's like, which end am I on? And, 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 and they could do that. They, they were dedicated completely to being seen as spiritual leaders to the people of the Jewish faith in Jerusalem. Being on the council was everything to them. Being in charge was everything to them. And here come these guys, these guys who are poor, untrained, uneducated. They are nothing they were following this guy claiming to be God, claiming to be a Messiah who they killed so easily. And yet these guys who come into town in a matter of, of days, of weeks, they get something that none of the Pharisees, none of the Sadducees had. They get the authority from God. God gives them the ability to miraculously heal people. And like that, overnight, the people listen to them. The people respect them. It's why they called them back to the temple and said, don't put them in chains, bring them back, be nice to them. We don't want to make the people upset. These guys were infuriated because they wanted to be the ones 
to lead the Jewish people. They wanted to be the ones with the answers. They were really good at being the ones with the answers. They came up with the answers to questions nobody had even thought to ask yet. And here comes Peter, and here comes the apostles. Here comes this early church full of poor people, uneducated people, slaves, all kinds of people. And they're healing. They're doing miraculous things. And it is getting really hard to deny that God is in this somehow. So they're filled with jealousy and they arrest them. The very men dedicated to keeping God at the forefront, no matter what happened, were actually just wanting attention, wanting to be the leaders. And the result of this, this man, Gamaliel, says to them, he says, let's remember what it is that we're doing here. The reason that I say that, that opposition shows us what we're really up against is because of how easy it is for us to take groups of people, even these Pharisees and these Sadducees, to, to take these guys who, who any time a group like this exists, it is half because of them and it is half because of the people. Just like any time in the church you get a bad teacher, you get a bad group of people, you get bad theology, it is half the person doing it and it is half the people cheering them on, listening to them saying, finally someone's telling me what I want to hear. Let's hear more of that. I'll buy your book. I'll go to your church. I'll listen to you speak. I'll pay your money. I'll tell everyone about you. I'll pass on your podcast. It's two sides to it. What we see is that these men aren't just the enemy. It's not just one group of people. It's not just one kind of person. It's not just one part of the Jewish faith. It's not just one sect. It's not just the Romans or the Pharisees or the Sadducees or any of those things. The enemy is the enemy. The enemy is Satan. The enemy is people not hearing about the life that they have in Jesus. And opposition brings out, it clarifies this for us. Why is it so important to talk about this right now, like of all times? Because we are literally entering a season of life. Like you can see it, I can see it, everybody can see it. It's like, it's right there, it's, it's, it's like palatable, you can see it in the air. We're all getting ready to start judging everybody. We're all getting ready to start making enemies, right? You, you, what side are you on here, right? Are you, do you think we're going overboard with all this quarantine stuff that's going on? Are people trying to control us? Are they trying to tell us what to do? Are they trying to tell me how to live my life? Is this all fear? Is this all conspiracy, right? Those people are ruining things for me. And I guarantee you that God is looking down on them and going, no way, not, not, not with my people, not in my country, not in my world that I created. We're looking at these other people and we're saying, because of them, because of their foolishness, because of their recklessness, because of their stubbornness, because of whatever else it is, they're putting my life at risk. They're putting other people's lives at risk because they won't take this seriously. I've already started, like you see it, right? Just in the matter of a few weeks, there was grace for a while with each other, with everybody. And then the grace started to fade away. Now I'm not saying that like, to be a Christian, to be a good follower of Jesus means we don't ever care about anything. We don't ever, get, we don't ever have opinions about things. We don't, ever, we don't ever stand up for ourselves. What I'm saying is that, is that as a believer, when we face opposition, we're not going to be the group of people who just go, oh, it's because of you. It's because of them. It's because of that one thing. Because we know that the real opposition, the real enemy, the real things that are going on are not that simple. And we also know 
that we're, we haven't been put here to fight those fights, to fight those battles, right? Because what opposition does is it shows us you now have another opportunity to do the thing that I'm calling you to do, which is to bring life to these people. Not life so that they could survive a pandemic, life so that they could survive spiritual death that's coming. The last thing that, that opposition does is it, is it shows us what we're worth. And believe me, that's very important to us, whether you think it is or not. Uh, we read about this at the very end of the passage. After they've been freed, um, you know, they, they beat them. They, they beat them. They get a little beating in, which that's fine. You know, they kind of do a little bit of this when nobody's looking, when Gamaliel turns his back. We read right at the end of the account in verse 41, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This phrase here, uh, that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, this is what we would call an oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms. In an honor and shame culture, uh, the most important thing about you, the thing that determined your worth more than anything, more than how much money you made, more than your looks, more than even your title, was the amount of honor that you were able to bring to yourself and to your family. Dishonor was the worst thing that could happen to a person. Disgrace, dishonor, translated directly into you knowing that you were now not worth anything. And yet, what do the apostles here say? They say that they uh, consider it, they consider, they consider it a privilege to count themselves worthy of being dishonored like this. How could you be so dishonored as them and still be worthy? Uh, to be called up to the Jewish high council uh, not, not just by the Sadducees, but the Pharisees, not just the uh, revolutionaries, but the pacifists, not just uh, the, the, the ones that Roman officially gave authority to, to keep everybody in line, but the ones that he didn't give authority to, but the people still looked up to and respected. Every single group, uh, every single type of Jewish leader is represented here. And now, in front of everyone in the temple courts, in front of the Sanhedrin, these men are publicly ridiculed and, and told to their faces, you are a disgrace. Go and stop speaking these things. And rather than say, as a result, we failed at life, we failed our families, what do they do? They say, we count ourselves privileged to be worthy of this. Opposition shows us what we're really worth. And by that, what I mean is that opposition changes our perspective enough to help us see clearly through all of the junk that we tend to wrap our worth up in. The, the opinions of other people, the, the comfort of the life that we're trying to put together for ourselves and instead see clearly what worth really is found in. And worth is found in basically two things. It's found in one, being like Jesus. The more that we're like Jesus, the more worth we have. Uh, this is what the disciples saw when they started following him. And even though they didn't really like a lot of the decisions Jesus made and the direction of his ministry ultimately, they still wanted to be like him. 
And so any situation where they step back and go, well, we just got treated the way Jesus was treated. We leaned into the opposition and saw it as an opportunity. We didn't try to just get around it and avoid it and run away from it because we thought it was an obstacle like Jesus. That makes us worthy. They wanted to be like Jesus. We spend a lot of time wanting to be like Jesus, saying, God, how can I live like Jesus, act like Jesus, walk like Jesus, talk like Jesus, think like Jesus, feel like Jesus, be the way Jesus was? Uh, Do we want that same thing when the opposition comes? Because if we do, then what we'll do is instead of praying and saying, God, will you save me from this thing? We'll instead say, God, How will you, how can you use this thing, the opportunity that we've both been waiting for has finally arrived? For me to experience opposition and to be able to be like Jesus through it. You know, we talked about the first miraculous healing that happened here in Acts. We talked about how hard it is for us to watch someone get healed and to know that many of us haven't received the miraculous answers to the things that we've asked for. The thing that we don't really talk much about is the fact that a follower of Jesus doesn't even really ask the question very much, uh, God, heal me. God, fix this thing in my life. God, help me. God, I need to get past and over this situation in my life that's difficult. Won't you please fix it? What the follower of Jesus instead says is, God, will you heal them? God, will you fix them? God, will you bring about miraculous things in their life. Why? Because I want them to see you and nothing can get their attention more than that. I want to be standing right there when it happens and I want to be able to say, God is the one who did that and it's because Jesus brings life. One way that we see our worth, uh, one thing that our worth is connected to is our ability to truly reflect Christ. The other is to understand more the love of God that he has for us. God loves us so much, and we can know about it in our brains, but not really truly live it out, live in light of that love that he has for us. Paul prays for the church in Ephesus that, he, that, they, would, uh, that they would know more, the height, the depth, the breadth, and the width, he says, of the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. This is, a, this is a church full of smart people who know a lot of stuff in the Bible, and he, he, they already know this idea that God loves them. They already know this idea that Paul's talking about, and yet, he wants them to really know it. And so he says, my prayer for you is that you would begin to understand how high God's love for you is, because it's a lot higher than you think it is. How, how, how deep God's love is for you, how much it can hold, how, how wide, how far God's love goes for you. No matter what we think we get about how much God loves us, we don't really fully get it. And there is nothing that gives us an opportunity to see God's love for us, to really fully get it, than when we go through opposition. We see it as an opportunity, and God shows up. The famous theologian, John, oh, well, I'll say this first. I was reading a book this last week, and uh, there was a dedication inside from the author. He, like, dedicated it to his kids. And uh, the dedication on the inside, I have it right here. He said, he says, uh, to my two beautiful children, also the other two. I love that. Uh, I think that when, uh, when we talk about the fact that God loves us, you know, we're his children, and then 
opposition comes, I think when we're honest, what we see in that opposition is we think, I must be the other two, right? If I'm one of God's kids, I'm not the two that he calls beautiful. I'm the other two that he's like, whatever, I forgot about those two. But the theologian John Owen writes about God's love, and he, he goes on and he, and he describes uh, how, how incredible and unchanging God's love is for us. It's not a matter of us doing things in trials so that God will love us more. The apostles didn't make God love them more by being brave and by going and uh, fulfilling the call he gave them. They understood more. They lived more in light of the love that God already had for them. This is what John Owen says about love, the love of God. He says, whom he loves, he loves unto the end. On whom he fixes his love, it is immutable. It does not grow to eternity. It is not diminished at any time. It is an external love that had no beginning, that shall have no ending, that cannot be heightened by any act of ours, that cannot be lessened by anything in us. Is it possible that we could cultivate lives in which we expect and maybe even anticipate the opposition coming. Not because we're masochists or because we think that we deserve pain, but because we know that it's really in that opposition that God can use us the most. Not just to show us how much we need him, how much he loves us, but to accomplish the good news being spread. Let's pray. Father, it is so hard for us to see life this way. But when we see what Peter and his, and his apostles, what they go through, when we see the way that they are ready to jump at every opportunity to share the gospel, we know it's because they are so fulfilled in Jesus, that they're so filled with joy in him, that they don't do these things because they're afraid or because they feel guilty or they feel obligated. They do these things because of how fulfilling life in you really is, God. Lord, would you give us a glimpse of that? Would you remind us that, that even though we uh, are, most of us are preoccupied, consumed even, constantly with thoughts about the life that we're trying to build for ourselves here on this earth, that even though most of us see opposition as nothing more than the thing in the way of what I really want to be doing right now. God, would you help us to see that it is instead an opportunity for us to see more clearly, to live more intentionally, to see you work in our lives, God. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.